Hello, welcome to the CityWire Funds Fanatic podcast. Uh, this is the second in the series. Uh, I'm Gavin Lumsden, editor of Investment Trust Insider at CityWire. With me is Daniel Grote, editor of CityWire Funds Insider website. Hi, Dan, how are you doing? Hi, Gavin. Last time we talked about the stock market crash and the, the dividend crisis, the huge cuts in uh, payouts that are uh, hitting uh, uh, investment funds and investment trusts. Um, but th- this time we're, we're going to talk about the other big story uh, this year. Uh, Mark Barnett, uh, fund manager in Vesco, uh, who was uh, sacked by the Perpetual Income and Growth Investment Trust. Um, that's the last investment trust uh, he was running. He'd run it for 20 years. I mean, actually, to be fair, I hadn't appreciated that until, um, you know, until his position really kind of came under pressure that he's been in charge of that trust for, 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 for that long. I guess I'd conflated it with Edinburgh where he replaced Woodford, but um, his That's right. I mean, very you, can date, you can date his underperformance, his problems date from Neil Woodford, his former boss and his mentor, uh, upping sticks to go off and form his own, uh, his own fund. We know what happened to Neil Woodford and Woodford Investment uh, Management last year. But the legacy that left uh, uh, Mark Barnett, uh, in retrospect, you know, was, uh, was a bad one. It, it, it gave him a big job, head of UK equities at Invesco. Uh, uh, which uh, Woodford had filled, and it gave him Woodford's big uh, income funds, the open-ended funds, uh, income and uh, high-income in Vesco, uh, as well as the Edinburgh Trust. And suddenly, his workload just uh, just increased uh, massively, and roughly since then, the uh, the performance, his style, was out of fashion. Uh, his, his stock picks were going wrong. Some of them, um, it's complicated because obviously there's whole Brexit uncertainty clouding prospects for UK stock markets and he was piling more and more into um, undervalued domestic, domestic stocks right. and, you know and, and they just weren't getting re-rated so that's you know it, it's hard to there's not just one there's never is just one thing leading to uh, you know performance going badly off the boil but you know with perpetual income it's worth pointing out yeah 20 year track record and for the first 16 years you know before he took on uh, lots of other duties after Woodford left uh, a fantastic record. I mean, I think it was 14 out of those 16 calendar years uh, he beat the all share. But I guess his his sacking is 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 not a surprise. Um, uh, you know, may, maybe maybe the timing of it is in the sense that um, it, it's come quite late. Uh, you know, certainly uh, it's come after Edinburgh, um, the larger trust sort of. Well, Edinburgh it's... surprised everyone because they, they there was no announcement from Edinburgh that uh, they were reviewing the situation. Uh, they just came out with saying we've been concerned for some time and um, we're picking Majedi. And uh, that was a double surprise because Majedi uh, Asset Management, uh, you know, a, a good outfit, good boutique, uh, sprung out of uh, Mercury Asset Management a long time ago. So they've still got the same initials, MAM, MAM. But, you know, recently the overall performance hasn't been uh, that brilliant. Um, but it, you know, it was a surprise. It was a surprise, A, there was no announcement that they were doing a review and then they just picked uh, you know, a kind of somebody from left field, it, w- it would appear. At that point, perpetual income, I mean, this was, uh, I think, two days before the general election. So perpetual income quite sensibly said, you know, not, having not made the decision and they were being accused of bottling it and, you know, and everything. But they had been making uh, you know, more and more uh, sterner noises in their statements uh, at results time. So we, you know, we kind of knew something was up. Um, but they said uh, that they weren't going to do anything two days before an election because that election result could change everything. And it, you know what? It nearly did, didn't it? 
because uh, perpetual income, in, just before the election, when it looked like the uh, Conservatives were going to get in, and then obviously afterwards, all these UK uh, domestic-type funds were doing really well. Perpetual mm. income was up uh, 5% uh, in December. Alone. Well, yeah, I mean, you look, at it, you look at it now, and it seems like a Philip, doesn't it? Whereas at the time, and certainly, you know, the noises that kind of value-focused UK managers were making was that, you know, this is the turning point. You know, we've had these sort of horrendous um, two to three years when, um, you know, this, this part of the market has been massively underrated uh, because, of, because of the Brexit vote and because of the outlook um, for the UK economy. And, and the election just seemed to kind of crystallise this, you know. All sorts of funds and trusts that had to do really badly were suddenly doing, uh, doing really well. You know, UK mid-cap particularly was just flying. Uh, Temple Bar, which is interesting from a, sort of the dividend uh, pressure we're, we're talking about. The Temple Bar run by Alistair Mundy at uh, Investec. You know, uh, 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 he's he and it, it has been struggling for, for years as well. But second half of last year, because of this kind of, uh, you know, Brexit uncertainty seemed to be lifting. It was flying away, flying away. And then you just thought the election result was going to could be the start of a whole new uh, new run, you know, better streak for it. And then what do we get? We get well, yeah, and, and, pandemic. And you, and you look at what's what's happened in terms of the stock stock market reaction to, to to the pandemic, and it's it's the you know the UK has been one of the hardest hit stock markets, uh, and you know the FTSE 250, um, uh, you know, which features a lot of those sort of domestic focused um, companies um, that derive most of the revenue from, from the UK economy, they've, you know, they've been hit even harder than the blue chips in, in the FTSE 100. And so kind of bringing the conversation about Barnet onto, onto the, the open-ended funds um, that well, now are his sort of main focus, um, uh, you know, they've been, you know, he's, he's, he's had another terrible run of performance. He's towards the bottom of his sector um, uh, since the turn of the year. Um, the funds have lost uh, around sort of 37% over that period. Um, and that's just, you know, widened this sort of huge gap that's emerging between, you know, him and the sort of trading pack uh, in, in the sector and everyone else. You know, it, he was to some extent being protected by his uh, his old mentor Neil Woodford um, when his fund was still around because that was right at the bottom but that's been taken out of the equation now and so it just piles more pressure onto yeah, it. Was, um, it was incredible wasn't it at the end of last year how quickly Barnet became the focus of uh, you know, media and all investors attention you know mm. Woodford exploded which is like the, the you know you were all over that story you know Woodford's uh, demise was just uh, just the biggest story uh, we, we've ever handled and uh, mm. and yet it happens uh, long, quite long drawn out saga. It dominates last year, but then it happens, and then immediately, like you know, the following week, everyone's talking about Barnet. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there are you know, there, you know, there are strict, striking sort of similarities between the two that stretch beyond just the fact that they worked for the same company uh, uh, and were colleagues. Um, I mean, Barnet's running Woodford's old funds, so um, you know, even five to six years down the line, there are still sort of um, aspects of those funds that have, you know, largely been inherited from, from Woodford. So you've got this sort of tale of uh, unquoted companies and obviously, um, you know, unquoted companies. Aren't they, isn't that quite a small position in private equity and uh, aren't they getting yeah. rid of it? Uh, yeah. And so uh, it, it's nothing like um, of the scale that uh, Woodford ended up kind of running in his, um, uh, in his funds and, and that kind of proved to be 
part of his undoing, but they have been growing. It's more important, uh, isn't it, Dan? Because he's facing these, you know, he's got these massive perform- questions about his performance, but in terms of structural viability, you know, this isn't, they're not in the situation that Woodford Equity Income was last year, when, you know, Woodford just couldn't sell the private equity, the, the unquoted quick enough. The, the, the value of the public equities kept on falling, and the purport, therefore the proportion of the uh, unquoted was always threatening to go above the, uh, the, the maximum allowed. And, uh, you know, it, it destabilised uh, the, the fund, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, there are sort of the same sort of forces at play, but on a smaller scale. So yeah. with Woodford's fund, I mean, you know, at the end of that fund's lifetime, he was essentially holding twice the amount that you're normally allowed to hold in unquoted companies. And, you know, we, he did that by listing them in, on, on, on Guernsey Stock Exchange to sort of get around the rules. Um, with Barnett, Barnett's funds, um, you know, he hasn't had to resort to that kind of chicanery. But it is worth pointing out that um, you know, last week, the value of his unquoted companies was slashed by around 16% as part of his plan to, uh, to sell them off. You know, the, the value was just took the view that, you know, if you've moved from becoming a holder of these companies to a seller and you're trying to, selling it, you're trying to sell them into this marketplace right now, you know, you're not going to fetch what we've been valuing them at. Before he'd done that, before those values had been cut, um, you know, he, the the percentage of his fund in unquoted companies was creeping up towards that 10% limit, which is, you know, the limit that the city regulator polices. And, you know, the reason it was creeping up wasn't because he was buying more unquoted companies. It was because the value of his, the rest of his funds was declining at, at a sort of fairly pre- precipitous rate. You know, to some extent that was down to people pulling money from his funds, but to a large extent, it was just down to the fall in the value of his funds as Stock markets have plunged. Have, the, have they? Has Invesco nipped that problem in the bud before it? You know, before it threatened to become out of hand, like it did with with Woodford. You know, they are. They they they've slashed the valuation, and they're going to sell them. Yeah, I mean, purely in in a mathematical sense, they have because you know they've they've gone from the you know the, the, those positions you know being around sort of nine percent of the fund to you know being around a third of that figure you would think they would have difficulty selling them um, because uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a market for, for buyers really at the moment, certainly not of, uh, you know, illiquid and quoted companies, but I, you know, I get, I guess that the, in terms of, you know, you mentioned the sort of structural viability of the funds. Um, I think it's not just about unquoted companies, uh, you know, and, and, and in Woodford case, Woodford's case, it wasn't just about unquoted companies. It was about, you know, a lot of the stuff that is listed on the stock market, but it's really small and it's really hard to trade. So if you've got lots of people pulling money out of your fund, it's really hard to sell those companies to then fund the redemptions from, from investors. Uh, you know, and, and on that front... is exposure to uh, illiquid stocks in general. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're listed, but it's still hard to trade them. And on that front, you know, they Invesco, really since Woodford imploded and since the fund was suspended, they've been at pains to you know, articulate how they are trying to improve uh, the liquidity uh, of the funds, you know, and, and so Barnett's saying that, you know, that's improving sort of on a weekly and a, and a daily basis. So just because they sold the unquoted companies, that doesn't mean, you know, liquidity doesn't become an issue anymore. And, you know, they're saying that the liquidity of the funds, you know, in terms of all the, all the rest of the stuff that, it, that, that, that they hold is improving. So, you know, we, we, we just have to see. We will. So do you think he's, uh, how long will investors um, 
give him, do you think? I mean, investors have been pulling money out of those funds at a rate of knots. Well, it's, I mean, it's really hard to see sort of, you know, what does success look like from this point? Because, um, you know, the, the funds have been outperforming, uh, underperforming, sorry, um, for so long. And that sort of accelerated really into the sell-off. So the one consolation that you would have had uh, maybe a year ago holding that sort of fund was that, you know, I've done badly, but my manager keeps telling me that, you know, these undervalued cheap companies, you know, are disproportionately so, um, you know, they're too cheap and they're going to rebound. And I guess you had that kind of cruel taste of the tentative signs of the success of that approach um, after the election. And then you just had, you know, you know, and, and it's not just, it's not just a Mark Barnett, an Invesco kind of phenomenon. Um, the kind of value approach that he uh, has adopted, that's been punished, you know, those funds have been punished harder than others um, in this cellar. Absolutely. And so, no, well, well, if I just bring in, bring in a, a, an example from the, from the trust world, yeah, it's not just Mark Barnett is suffering, it's value managers per se. So uh, Temple Bar, you know, well-known, uh, popular UK equity income trust, you know, with a really deep value style, which has, you know, not performed well uh, under Alistair Mundy, the fund manager. But um, as I said earlier, started rallying uh, second half of last year. But then the coronavirus fears hit us and that gets completely snuffed out. The shares halved in the first quarter. And now it turns out analysts are scouring all these trusts in like the, uh, their exposure to dividend cuts. And they've got the biggest exposure to the sectors where dividends cuts are, are, are most, you know, most prevalent, financials and possibly oils and that sort of thing. So it's pretty cruel. Well, uh, these value managers... Investors in that trust. Yeah. And and they, they, you know, they... But on the other, other hand, well, who's it benefiting? Well, you know, who, who's the best known um, investment uh, tr trust in that sector? It's Finsbury Growth and Income run by Nick Train. You know, great track record, leading the sector over most time periods, certainly over 10 years. And, uh, you know, it's got the least exposure to uh, dividend cuts. So suddenly everything's conspiring to make its, you know, trains uh, focus on quality growth stocks, uh, who, which aren't exposed to, uh, you know, the economic cycles as, as, as much as others. Uh, everything's conspiring to make you know, it looked really, really good. Um, well, and, uh, and we've got the same, the, the same thing with, with, with open-ended funds. It's, you know, it's, it's the funds that did well before this that have done well after it. So, you know, Fundsmith uh, and Lindsay Train, both their UK and their global funds, because, you know, those funds have got investments in, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of technology sort of focused companies in there. So um, the kinds of companies that, you know, they're, they're well suited um, uh, or they're better suited than others to, you know, a world in which vast portions of the global population is, is sat at home because they're not allowed out. Um, and then, it, you know, and then they hold, um, you know, consumer staples companies, you know, producing soap and toothpaste and, you know, hand sanitizer, uh, you know, just the sorts of things where sales are going to hold up uh, in the kind of crisis that we find ourselves in at the moment. And, the, the flip side of that, like you were saying, is, you know, that it's those investors who've been sat in the funds that have performed poorly running up to this, um, that have 
a value approach and uh, you know uh, uh, invested in the more kind of cyclical areas of the economy um, the cyclical kind of companies that are more exposed to the fluctuations of um, the UK and kind of global economies they're the ones that have been really punished um, uh, uh, in this stock market set off um, so that kind of gap between quality growth and, and value is is just widening to, to really pretty exceptional levels so where does that leave us is there any point in having a value fund, do you think, for kind of diversification purposes? It feels, you know, if your own uh, sort of savings or if they give an individual putting together a few uh, funds and trusts uh, in a SIP or an ISA, you know, uh, it's dangerous to put all your eggs in one basket. Is it dangerous mm. to have uh, just growth funds, even though um, growth funds and trusts seem to be the ones doing really well at the moment? It's, it's, it's hard to say, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, on, on, on the one hand, you would think that... Um, you know, how many times can a value manager go out to their investors and say, you know, we, we, we've had a bad year, but things will change. You know, uh, you know, they always do. And, um, you know, the mean will revert and, you know, the, the sorts of phrases that, that, that you hear from them. It does get a bit tedious, doesn't it? But you know what? But there is value and value. I mean, I just think when you're saying that, you're somebody like Alex Wright of Fidelity, you know, runs trusts and, and funds. Um, you know, he always describes himself as a contrarian value investor, picking out a favour stocks and looking for things where there's a catalyst he reckons there's something's going to happen to you know make the company do well or for people to look at it in a better light um you know actually the past year year and a half has been maybe a bit, bit tricky but actually his, his record as a value fund manager is all right isn't it yeah and i think you know he's um he maybe hasn't been drawn to the real sort of extremes um uh in 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 terms of you know really kind of bombed out companies um and i think you know he's that there are times where he's been drawn to kind of more sort of defensive sectors that might be a little bit more expensive um than than the kind of pure cyclical yeah he's a bit pragmatic isn't he a bit more flexible than uh, yeah. some of the other real deep value merchants could be a reference to merchant investment trust <laughs> <laughs> i don't know they're not that deep value but they're definitely value so what's the conclusion of all this then it's it's those that have done badly are doing worse. Those that have done well are doing better. <laughs> so is that going to change? But what's that phrase around um, where people give up? That's the moment to, you know, when, when, uh, when there's blood on the streets. And to, to talking about stock markets here, when markets are really battered and have fallen and fallen yeah. and everyone's capitulating, then that's the moment. Capitulation's the word, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's a good word, yeah. isn't it? Does it, you know, just does it apply to a, to a style as well? You know, when people are totally giving up on, on value funds, is that the time to, you know, that's what I think that was what I was asking is like, maybe you do keep, uh, you know, one or two value funds or trusts in your portfolio if, uh, if you've got, you know, if you've got a collection of them, just because you never know, it, it might bounce back. I mean, and, and uh, hopefully, you know, this uh, pandemic, you know, this crisis is not going to go on forever. Uh, we can't see the end of the tunnel, which is at the moment, we can't see light at the end of the tunnel. Either. Uh, so that's what's so damaging confidence and, uh, uh, economic and stock market prospects but um you know uh, we will get through it won't we so you just got to hope that some of these companies that these companies that the funds are investing in uh, will survive but then that goes back to your point about it's the quality growth ones that they're the ones in investing in companies that are strong with strong balance sheets and uh, who can weather storms well and i guess if you're looking for sort of light at the end of the tunnel for value strategies and, and, and for value funds i mean you only really have to look at the way stock markets have been behaving over the last few weeks where you know as soon as there's any sort of tentative sign that 
the outlook might not be quite as bad as investors have thought. You know, it's all the, the companies that have been hit the hardest in this sell-off that were rising the most. If there's any sorts of, sort of recovery, um, you know, those kind of value-focused managers, um, you know, that will be their time to shine. And if yeah. they don't do it then, when's it going to happen? So we're going to give them... They're going to get one more chance. <laughs> if you're still in some of these funds and these shares, uh, you know, you, 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 you've taken a lot of uh, pain, so maybe you should hang on in there. But uh, I think what you're saying is that they've got one more chance to get it right when we do pull through this. Then they've got to really motor. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that will give us something to look out for.